They were on their way to a Top 100 meeting, a secret corporate retreat hosted by Jobs at a resort south of Monterey Bay. Apple had just introduced a lineup of lighter and smaller MacBook Air laptop computers, and the company was heading into a busy holiday sale season. With new versions of the iPad and the iPhone also in the works, it was a good time to step away from the daily grind to think about Apple's future strategy. Top 100s were meant for the company's brain trust. Everything about it was supposed to be kept hush-hush, and nobody was allowed to log it into their calendars. Those who made it onto the list were asked to keep the invitations to themselves, so their inclusion didn't spark jealousy. The secrecy added to the allure, reinforcing the sense that the company was working on things too exciting and special to share with just anyone. In reality, the secrecy was a farce. There was no way that the disappearance of a hundred executives could go unnoticed, especially when they needed help from their staff to prepare. In their absence, some of the staff would hold a tongue-in-cheek bottom 100 get-together. It was usually low-key, lunch or a few drinks, snacks, and a bit of unwinding. One favorite place to go was BJ's Restaurant and Brew House, which was so close that employees treated it like their private watering hole. They jokingly called it IL-7, the unofficial seventh building on campus. The core of the elite group included all of Jobs' inner circle of lieutenants, such as Cook, Ive, mobile software head Scott Forstall, marketing chief Phil Schiller, and iTunes lead Eddie Q. The rest of the handpicked names telegraphed Jobs' priorities and could change from year to year. Sales executives were largely excluded because Jobs viewed them as replaceable. Lee Clow, the creative lead at TBWA Chiat Day, the agency responsible for Apple's award-winning ads, was routinely invited even though he was an outsider. Jobs thought the hip and edgy campaigns that Klaus' team dreamed up were crucial to Apple's brand. Intel executive Paul Ottolini, as well as AT&T's key contact Glenn Lurie, had also attended a portion of the confabs in past years. The rumor was that Jobs preferred to mix it up by making sure that about a third of the list was composed of fresh faces. Previous attendance was no guarantee of another invite, and even if you were chosen, your invitation could evaporate in an instant. One year, a new manager in the iTunes unit was pulled off one of the buses as it was leaving. After a meeting had gone poorly a few days earlier, Jobs had labeled him an idiot and ordered the hapless man disinvited. Jobs called the top 100 meetings irregularly and always with only about a month's notice. Some years there were two gatherings, other years none. Apple's biggest products and services were first unveiled internally at these meetings. Past participants heard about Apple's retail strategy and got early peeks at the iPhone and iPad. One year, Jobs solicited names for the digital music player Apple was developing. It was an exciting yet deflating moment. After the audience eagerly suggested names like iPlay and iMusic, Jobs said, Those are all shit. I'm sticking with what I've got. A top 100 invitation was a mixed blessing. To be chosen was unquestionably a privilege. But if you were asked to make a presentation, the pressure was nerve-wracking. Jobs cared deeply about aesthetics, and those tastes extended to everything, including slides, created on Apple's presentation software Keynote. Jobs had strict rules about them. One font family per presentation, three or five bullet points per slide, never four, 
and titles 30% above the centerline. The file size also could not be more than 8 megabytes, just enough to show up well on a projection screen. Jobs hated big files. Making the task all the more onerous, there was no instruction manual. Some had a knack for intuiting what their boss wanted. Bob Borchers, a product marketing executive for iPhones, had been so skillful that his colleagues used to call him the slide bitch. To get to the retreat, everyone had to take the chartered buses to the Carmel Valley Ranch, a 500-acre resort surrounded by vineyards and lavender plants. It had a golf course, nine tennis courts, two pools, and two fitness centers. Not that these amenities mattered.